everyone, and uh, welcome. Thank you for joining our ACQC podcast today. Um, today's podcast is going to um, cover the Q&A summary that we had from a recent webinar on April 23rd of 2015. Um, two of our research program managers, Holly Lycoglant and Andrea Stroud, discussed best practices in product and project portfolio management, uh, including establishing a standardized project submission process, applying value and risk assessments for project prioritization and selection, uh, overcoming roadblocks or other opportunities through structured reviews, um, ensuring compliance, standardization, and of course, continuous improvement. So that particular webinar garnered a lot of questions. People seemed to be very interested in it. And so we decided to go ahead and carry on the Q&A session um, that we had from that webinar. So I guess we'll go ahead and get started. Thank you, Holly, and thank you, Andrea, for joining us. Looking forward to this today. Thank you for having us. Absolutely. So I'm just going to dive right in. I'm going to ask questions, um, and either Holly or you, Andrea, can answer, um, or y'all can elaborate on each other's answers if you deem necessary as well. Um, but I'm just going to go ahead and jump right in. So um, let's talk about a um, scoring model. Does APQC have a scoring model that they would like to share with um, the listeners? Um, I'll take the first out of that. Uh, we don't have a specific scoring model because whatever variables that the organization is going to use to identify and prioritize their projects has to be what's important and aligns with their strategic goals. Hence, you know, having a standardized scoring model is not going to work. However, in some of the case studies that we covered during the presentation on portfolio management from project management perspective, there were scoring models, usually about one to five variables for risk and one to five variables for value, and they ranged everything from strategic alignment to payback periods or from the risk perspective, you know, what, how much impact is this going to have on the organization to what do we not know to how many, you know, what kind of mitigation plans do we have. So again, any scale from about 1 to 5 or 1 to 10 works, and then you kind of do a 2 by 2 matrix so you can see where the organizations fit there. Great. Do you have anything to add to that, Andrea? No, I think she covered it perfectly. All right. Thank you, Holly. So let's move to the next one. Um, how would you suggest promoting innovation for a service-oriented industry? It's probably a loaded question. Well, I think communication is key to promoting service or promoting innovation in the service uh, industry. Um, you know, the, the top has to communicate down to the bottom and vice versa. Everyone has to be somewhat transparent um, as to what's going on. But I think that is key is, is kind of communicating. Also, um, making sure that everything is, is sort of documented. I think, you know, documenting certain uh, processes within innovation, um, documenting, um, you know, communication paths, who should communicate up to who or pass that information um, on, and then, you know, documenting any sort of lessons learned um, from the things the organization is learning and going through. Um, I have a question for you. Uh, so, I mean, service organizations tend to be very customer-focused. Um, would you think a way to potentially uh, promote innovation would be to kind of share all that customer feedback throughout the organization? Maybe, yeah. Absolutely. Um, so collecting voices of customer information is essential for organizations, but yes, when you collect that information, it does have to be communicated back throughout the organization. Otherwise, change won't occur um, and improvements won't occur, so that, that's essential. Cool. And how would you recommend the communication happen? Is this through emails or presentations? So, or? Uh, 
different organizations have different ways of communicating. Some of them use things like wikis. Some of them use, you know, SharePoint sites to share information. Um, some of them have uh, communities of practice where they share information. Um, all of those are, are beneficial and, and help organizations get the word out. So there's no one-size-fits-all, just kind of what helps that particular organization? Correct, correct. It's just it's kind of making sure you have kind of a set standard, though, of things um, or methods of uh, collecting that information and sharing it. But no, I mean, what, what, what will work for one organization may not necessarily work for another organization. But there has to be some method of sharing. So again, some companies use communities practice. Some use poster presentations where they're sharing information. Um, some actually go out and have these innovation contests, at least in the innovation space, um, where they're getting information that's kind of filtered in through kind of an online uh, database and, and shared throughout the organization so that they can continue to create new products or create new services and move forward. Great. Does that cover that question? Thanks. Oh, all right. So um, I'm not sure who this one is for, but how do you suggest reconciling projects of high value that might contradict each other? For example, two different divisions that, if implementing both, will result, will result in contradictory customer experiences among shared customers. And so that's really where that strategic alignment factor is incredibly important because um, even if you have they're going about it two different ways. They're going to create two different customer experiences. Well, the organization itself needs to have an alignment on what the customer experience they want those customers to have is. So anything that would deviate away from that should either be pulled back and readjusted or that project shouldn't get funded at all. I'm not going to necessarily say the project shouldn't get funded at all, but there's a time and place for every project. Sometimes projects are necessarily are not um, they're not pushed to extinction, but rather they are sidelined for a short period of time until the time is right to bring them um, into the market through the project's uh, portfolio process. No bad ideas, just ones that may need to be further developed? Well, no, I'm not going to say there aren't any bad ideas. I'm just saying that what we've seen in a lot of organizations, especially, for example, from our Open Innovation uh, Best Practices study, um, you know, Corning, for example, said that they had no problems sidelining a project for a short amount of time and then coming back to it. Um, in the innovation space, something, you might get ahead of your time. You know, there might be a product that is ahead of its time and it's not quite ready and you have to sideline. It's not a bad idea, it's just the customers might not be ready for that idea yet. Yeah. I like it. I like it. Okay, let's move on to the next question then. Uh, what is the relationship between product portfolio management and product life cycle? Life cycle management. Who do you want to go first on that one? How would you like to All right, I can go. We'll get insights from both of you guys. All right, so product portfolio management is really kind of a picture of a lot of products or products or projects going on at once. So you're looking at a lot of moving pieces as they go through the development period from I've got a great idea to launch, right? Um, product life cycle management, however, is looking at managing a specific project or product and once it's launched, you know, once something's out into the field, it goes through a curve from initiation up to its maturity, and then it kind of platforms, and then it dies off. What the life cycle management is to help you keep an eye about when you need to pull that product or project for incremental innovation or continuous improvement efforts, because it's no longer bringing in additional revenue or the revenue you want. 
Um, so it's just a way of managing that project or product after it's kind of gone through that initial stage gate. Andrea? Just to add that, so looking at things from a portfolio standpoint, that is more about, it's a, more, it's a bigger picture. It's about the alignment of the different products with what the organization has found valuable. When you get into, um, you know, looking at the life cycle, again, it's kind of the individual project or product that is going through the life cycle. Both of them actually have an end-to-end process, um, but again, one is actually looking at multiple end-to-end processes, whereas one is only looking at a single end-to-end process. Great. Great points, ladies. Okay. Uh, the webinar mentioned that value and risk scorecards are only used for an input. However, leadership still decides which projects make the portfolio. When leaders have different motives, is there guidance on how to objectively prioritize what moves over to the portfolio? There's the initial initial ranking, um, which cuts out a lot of the projects that could be just one person's favorite. However, that's why you have a committee, and that's why you have a committee of leadership. <laughs> that's facilitated by a third party, either, you know, management from R&D perspective who's over all the product lines or from the PMOs who are there to facilitate even discussion and make sure one person doesn't push the line or another. So it's kind of like democracy kind of wins out because you're having everybody talk about the merits and restraints of the project. So one person is not going to be able to push their pet project through. Right. So I'd like to add that from the PD innovation space. Um, again, what Holly said is correct. It's all about kind of having that committee um, and having leadership that is not just from one specific area. What we've seen in the innovation space, for example, if people will bring in leadership from the manufacturing space or the procurement space or even the marketing space to kind of help us out on the projects because all of those different groups in a lot of ways contribute to the product going through, product to project going through um, the portfolio. Um, what we've also seen uh, is that different um, points along the prioritization or the choosing of different uh, projects, you will have different leadership making decisions at different decision points. Um, and this kind of helps to, to eliminate some of that bias and kind of get different perspectives to ensure that the projects that you're choosing to do are the most beneficial for the organization. And so that's a great point. Um, one of the case studies, they did just that. So they had a larger leadership group that represent into the initial racking and stacking of the projects and the prioritization based on that risk and value analysis. Um, so they then took the top tiers, the ones that were going to obviously make it into the budget, and then the most senior leadership went through and had a separate meeting. So that then they, because despite their seniority, theoretically they should be a lot more objective, <laughs> would then go and actually prioritize the order. And part of that too with prioritization too to keep in mind is it's about doing the upfront work the upfront homework, the upfront research, so that your decisions, when you're going into the prioritization phase, that you are well informed as to what you think may or may not work. And again, as Holly had pointed out, kind of thinking about the risks that are involved with every single project that's going through the portfolio. Good point for that whole standardized input going into the process and making sure that they match what the driving factors behind your organization's needs is completely vital for all of it. Yes, absolutely. Great. Thanks, ladies. Um, Andrea, this might be just you, or Holly, you probably have something to add to it, but for the innovation portion of the webinar, do the example companies have dedicated resources to support innovation projects, or were they pulled from resources supporting other business functions or units? 
So for the examples in the case study, I think I mentioned Amway, and I think I may have mentioned Cisco. Some of those examples were pulled from our Open Innovation uh, Enhanced Ideas for Generation uh, Best Practice Study. In that study, they actually had dedicated Open Innovation groups um, to manage those projects. And in that case, some of those groups were even different from their normal innovation groups. Um, so we found that the best way for an organization to kind of um, ensure uh, that projects are going through effectively is to kind of have a separate dedicated group. Um, now, that's not to say that some organizations, especially smaller organizations, aren't um, having uh, different employees kind of uh, have double duty, if you will. Um, but we're not going to say that's, that's the best practice. That's not the most effective way of doing things. Sometimes you have to do what you have to do with the resources that you have. Um, but in those cases, you have to make sure that people have the time to allocate to whatever project. So don't assign someone who has, for example, let's just say 40 hours that they have to commit to, you know, project A, B, and C, and then you go give them this new innovation project that they have no hours available to commit to it. So you just want to make sure that you have the appropriate um, resources available. Um, some the most effective best practice way is to have a separate innovation group that is not always available. So just making sure that if that isn't available, that people have the time to, to commit themselves to the project. I have a question for you. Um, some things I've seen before is you have the funding for all that early upstage part, so all the tech scouting, all the initial discovery work and all that, all that's funded from like the central group. And then once you get into actual stage gate, the funding actually comes from whatever division or business line Correct. that is actually going to have that product. Um, so is that what you think is usually probably maybe one of the best practices approaches? That way there's, you've got objectivity from resources from corporates, right. and then you actually have buy-in from business lines by having them fund the full development. I would say that is the best practice. That happens the majority of the time, but not always. Right. That doesn't always happen. I mean, there are some groups that just get funded, their innovation group is funded, and then they push it through. Um, but, yeah, anytime that you can have funding from the top and then have those business divisions involved, of course it's going to be a better process. And you know your, your projects that are going through are being supported from right. top down. Great. Thanks. Okay. Um, how do you see program management being incorporated into your por portfolio management system? Um, Actually, I mean, especially if you go back, program of program and project are, are similar things. They're concepts. One's just more a program is a collection of projects already. Um, so a lot of organizations will use the same system for both project and portfolio management. Um, for example, both Bill and Gates, Melinda Gates Foundation case study, the Doe Run case study, and even to an extent the Calgary case study all did that same thing. Um, because, again, it's just a matter of different scale of effect. So whereas you're looking specifically at a project, each objective has its, has its things that you have to manage. When you're looking at a program, each project would be those objectives. So then you'd have it even further broken down. But in theory, it works the same way. Absolutely. I completely agree with you. Okay. Great. We'll move on then. Can dependency be analyzed by one project depending on another project? I would say yes. And that's where some of that really important factors, such as who are the stakeholders, um, timing, milestones, inputs, outputs, all of that is incredibly important information to put in your input because that way you can see the overlaps. And um, same thing with that 
was that the change impact thing that the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation did, which is because they then mapped out where the projects were going to hit, who they were going to hit, and when they were going to hit. So you could then also see from that same map what projects feed into other projects or where there's synergies, um, which then you can also pull that back, not just to look for synergies between projects, but also synergies before, between resource assignments as well. So you can invest in one FTE who's going to be working on two projects instead of having to invest in two FTEs, which is the same person working on the process, you get a more realistic perspective of what you're investing in. So I agree with that, too. Um, I think it's important to have your milestones set. And really, um, you know, you often have one project leading into another, and those actually come, out, come about in phases of a project. So, for example, someone who's going to build a bridge or a building, there are different phases to that project. One thing has to be finished in order for the next phase to start. And as, as Holly pointed out, having the input and output, um, all those things kind of laid out up front is very important because you know what's dependent on another. When you know in phase one, for example, that you may be behind by two months, you know that's going to set your phase two um, portion of the project back also approximately two months. Or either you have to figure out a way to increase resources so that you can stay on track. But having everything laid out is definitely helpful in, in kind of making sure things kind of go as planned. And that goes back to the second best practice about the project review. Because the project reviews from a portfolio level, because you can look at that one project. But if there's other projects that are associated with it, you're not going to know unless you have those and those careful reviews on a regular basis, monthly or quarterly, depending on the timeline of your projects, to be able to then go and readjust all of the plans. Absolutely. Great. Thank you. Um, all right. So we got a lot of questions uh, very similar to this one, so I'll just ask the one for time's sake. But can you provide guidelines to capture lessons learned, or rather to obtain lessons learned? For example, what types of questions besides what did you learn in this project should you ask when gathering the lessons learned? I think in lessons learned, it's not just what did you gather, but things like what successes did we see? What were the wins? Um, you're going to ask about your wins, your losses. You're going to look... Um, you're going to look at the different risk factors that came about and how you handled them. Um, because it's not just the reporting of what happened, but also how did you handle what happened, I think, is kind of essential um, for lessons learned. Uh, and organizations do different, have different methods of capturing lessons learned. A lot of them usually come together um, as kind of a uh, project closeout, if you will, and discuss all the different things that went on in the project. Um, you know, what worked, what didn't. But the important thing uh, I think organizations should keep in mind is to not just do it at the end of the project. What we found is the best practice are organizations who can actually kind of do a lessons learned in certain segments or milestones or phases of the project because by the end of the project, many people tend to forget kind of some of the things that worked or didn't work. So kind of Having that uh, or collecting that information throughout the project at certain stages, I think, is very important. Either they forget or they don't have enough time to gather all the lessons learned either because they're on to the next phase or the, the next project. Absolutely. Yep. And that's a great point, especially, I mean, that's a lot of some of the best practices we saw from a project management perspective was they base those into the project review. And they also did a formal one at the end, but during the project review, 
all the project managers would get together, discuss the project, and, you know, kind of ask, so what's going right, and why is it going right, what's going wrong, and how are we going to fix it? And that information, I mean, having that open conversation, but having that somebody document that as well, and then also find a way to put that documentation into the process we thought was really important, like with Doe Run, where they then took and had a database capturing all that information and then forced every project manager when they did project kickoff to look at the database and identify at least two or three lessons learned that would be applicable to what they were doing. And they had to document that part of the submission process. I'd also recommend putting in customer feedback into that lessons learned process. Customers are going to give you feedback along the way, and of course they're going to give you feedback when you deliver on the project. Getting and recording that information I think is essential in knowing. It goes back to the customer and knowing how to move forward on future projects with them or even projects not with them, but again, moving forward and making sure that you're capturing what worked and what didn't for the customer, not just what you think worked and didn't work. Great. Thank you. <clears throat> okay. Let's keep on moving here. Um, are there any formulas to calculate the project benefits for decision making? Uh, sometimes I guess there's a ton of them. Or do you want to talk about it? Well, I mean, there's tons of a lot of organizations use different ones. Some of them use net present value. Some of them use return on investment. Some of them look at payback period. Um, and but those are all things also that are going to have a financial value. The harder part is when you're doing projects that don't create revenue or have cost. Mm -hmm. So instead you have to have some kind of dummy variable that you can then put a dollar sign on value on. And that then, it, to be able to do that accurately, requires you going back and doing some kind of regression analysis or something to identify what effects it's had either on the bottom or the top line growth. Getting back to what you said, again, there are all types of formulas. I would say ROI and NPV would probably hear are the most common ones that organizations, that's like the first thing that organizations want to go to. They always want to go to, to that kind of financial aspect. Um, but what we've seen, too, in the innovation space is even beyond getting the value from formulas, but actually having that qualitative feedback is also beneficial. Again, it goes back to getting that voice of the customer um, information and kind of what's working for, 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 different, uh, for different organizations and different customers and how they feel about whatever it is that you provided for them. Um, I don't think it should all be based on financial um, metrics, even though, again, that is the go-to. Right. Um, something else in the product development space that organizations tend to look at are things like um, projects that have actually gone through on time, um, uh, you know, project successes. Those things are all recorded in a numeric sense um, that are not necessarily directly financially tied to data. Well, that segues really well into the next question that I have here, which is um, how did you um, or how would you measure or determine project value? So I think they're very similar similar answers probably. Right. And, again, that's all depending on the project and the type of project it is. Um, if it's, you know, some projects are looking at gaining market share, so that's what you're going to measure. Some are looking at getting your, you know, say you're doing some kind of transformational changes in the organization. Well, the best way to measure changing the way people do work is to look at their adoption rates. So how quickly and what percentage of people are, are taking on the new processes. So again, it's that kind of wide range thing. The hardest thing and the most important thing is that you have to measure it. 
and you have to measure the value. Uh, especially in product management, we tend to skew it to time, budget, cost, schedule, all of those things that are measuring the execution of the project, but not the project itself. Absolutely. That's not to say that those things aren't important they also. Are. <laughs> <laughs> but they're not. And yeah. you're safe, Andrea. Yeah, that's not to say that those aren't important <laughs> they, also. They're very important. Um, oh, because here's something else, too, that you're going to see. High leadership or upper leadership in organizations um, or senior leadership, rather, they like numbers. So they still want to see the numbers. Um, but then you have the, I call them the workers. Those are our project managers. <laughs> they are the worker bees, if you look at the facilitators. Um, but they want to capture those other things, too, not just the metrics, because there's so many more things that are beneficial to, to find out whether or not something is working or not working. So. Great. So we've only got a couple more here. So I'm going to hit you with this one. Do companies use scenario techniques like Monte Carlo simulations for portfolio and project assessments? Well, if you ask Holly this, <laughs> she would probably say it's extinct. I, 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 it is still used. It's just not my favorite scenario method. <laughs> but I will say, so in the, in the project management space, uh, Monte Carlo is still very much used. It's not a favorite by all. Um, I will say it's used probably more, not as much in product development or innovation, but you see a lot in like financial type projects, um, marketing. Marketing. Again, they, a lot of a risk projects that are high risk where you do different risk analysis. Um, but one thing I'll point out is the Monte, the Monte Carlo, um, project or uh, method is one way. A lot of organizations will go about analyzing risk in multiple ways to kind of see what the different outcomes are. So you don't want to rely on just one method of checking potential risk. You want to look at a, a multitude of different ways. I would agree. Uh, okay, here. My, my favorite is actually tornado diagrams. If you take those variables from your business cases and you have your, your project team say, okay, at the least, say we're doing the variable for market share. At the least we'll get 3% market share. At best case scenario, if we can get out into market for anybody else, we can get up to 19%. More than likely, we'll sit somewhere in the middle between 7%. So for each one of your variables, your experienced project team has these conversations backed by data, and they create that for each one of those ranges, for each one of those variables, that range. Then they rack and stack it, so the longest ones on the top, smallest ones on the bottom. So. But the kicker before here is you have to have some kind of regression analysis beforehand to understand the deltas for those variables. So say it's you know, a three to a five, what's that going to do to your NPV or your ROI? Um, but why it's cool for risk is then you look and you stack and you see which areas, the ones that have the largest range, are your riskiest factors. So if you have a really wide range, you know you need to go back to the project team and say, there's a problem here. We need to narrow down or get more data or do some more background research to find out and hone in on what that market value is going to be. Um, the tornado diagrams are also really cool because you do side-by-side comparison of all the projects in the portfolio looking at the same thing. So you know what their MEV is going to be, you know what their variables are going to be, which also means you kind of know where your investment money is going. Yeah. And if they're similar projects and they have very different variables, well, which one's got more background? Which one is probably more accurate? And you can use that to kind of help the groups teach each other and work together to refine their projects. Okay, that was my soapbox. Have you seen, <laughs> Holly, have you seen 
Kelly, have you seen any groups that are using um, the tornado diagrams more than others? So are they used more on certain projects more than others or certain industries? Um, the groups that we've worked with, I've seen them in a wide range of industries. Um, I got introduced to them years ago when I was doing some product development research and best practices case studies. They're really good for anything with manufacturing. Um, but the same groups that we're using though for the product development, we're actually also using them to test new strategic initiatives and business lines, which is kind of cool. That does sound pretty cool. So you can then go and do a match of all the projected business lines you're thinking about doing. Now the variables are going to be different, but the approach is the same. Great. Anything else to add to that? No, I think she she hit it on the head. All right, so you for now. Yeah. <laughs> all right. Well, let's move into our final question then. How do organizations overcome the potential for good projects to get killed because of management biases during selection and prioritization process? Uh, I know we're staring at each other, right? Mm -hmm. The last one. Yeah, one more time. How do organizations overcome the potential for good projects to get killed because of management biases? during the selection and prioritization process? Well, that goes back to the same that earlier back question. back to the earlier question. You know, again, if the people don't want your project killed, part of it is doing the upfront research. Um, I think that's essential. Also, making sure that your project, you think is a good project, is aligned with the organization's strategy. Um, because there are a lot of great projects out there, but if they are not aligned with what your organization is trying to achieve, then it doesn't matter how good of an idea it seems or, you know, a potential good project, maybe it's not the right project at that time. So kind of making sure that you bring leadership in initially and making sure that everyone's kind of on board with this topic, I think, or not topic, but whatever uh, project that you're trying to push through, I think is essential. I completely agree. It's about that balance, balance. democratic, because the whole process, most approaches to kill projects early are not going to provide value to the organization. Huh? Weed them out. Yeah, weed them out. Because it, it's hard. I mean, as a researcher, I mean, as a product researcher or product manager, as a researcher, I know I get very attached to my projects. We always do. You know, these are our babies. We don't want to see them get killed out of the pipeline. So we may not always be the most objective people. So this process puts that objectivity in it through the input and through the oversight by leadership. Perfect. Well, that um, that takes care of all the questions that we didn't get to cover during the actual web during the actual webinar. Um, so for those of you listening, if you have any other questions about anything that Andrea or Holly have discussed today or about the webinar or just about APTC in general, um, please go ahead and reach out to us directly. I'm going to give you um, their direct emails here. So Holly's is H-L-Y-K-E-H-O-G-L-A-N-D at APTC.org. And you can reach Andrea at A. S-P-R-O-U-D at APQC.org. Um, you can find recordings to the webinar. You can find the slide decks, and you can find a um, transcribed summary from the actual webinar um, on our knowledge base. And you can get to the knowledge base at www.apqc.org. Um, and you can find our knowledge, knowledge base there. You, you may have to register for our site if you haven't um, to download some of this content. But that concludes today's podcast.